Well, people of God, let us open our copies of God's Word to Micah chapter 5 with a focus on verse 2. The prophet Micah chapter 5. Now, we have all this month focused upon Advent themes, the coming of the Savior. Perhaps our shall I say, the big service in which we have our candlelights and so forth was Lessons and Carols. On Sunday morning, we we dwelt on the theme of the Incarnation from John chapter 1. And I have always viewed our Christmas Eve service as a time to quiet ourselves before some of you are trying to um, get children to bed that don't want to go there or don't want to stay there. Uh, Others of you maybe are uh, attempting to put bicycles together or whatever it may be. This is an opportunity for us to refocus once more about what this is all about. And so we're going to turn to this ancient prophecy of Micah with a focus on verse 2. Will you pray with me and then we will stand to read. Our Father, we have just sung from one of our great hymns, Now ye need not fear the grave, Jesus Christ was born to save. And only a believer in Christ can look death in the face and say, I do not fear death, because I have trusted the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And because he has said, no one can come to the Father but by me, He has enabled me to trust in Him. And as we come to this prophecy, this prophecy, this old prophecy in Thy Word, may the freshness and wonder of it fill our minds and hearts so that we may understand that we have not gathered for reasons that perhaps some gather on a Christmas Eve perhaps for good feelings, though we like good feelings, perhaps for sentiment, though sentiment has its place. But because we would submit our hearts to the authority of the Word of God, and we would be transformed and conformed to the image of thine own Son who came to save us from our sins, and because we would remember the birth, and with it the death, and with it the resurrection and the ascension and the second coming of our Savior. Thank God for the gospel. We thank Thee, Father, for saving us, and that now those who trust in Christ are not condemned, and we need not fear the grave. In Jesus' name we pray. Bless the preaching of Thy Word. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Micah chapter 5. I'm reading the first three verses. We will read verse 2 again. This is the word of the Lord. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. 
Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Verse 2 again. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the time in which the prophet wrote were dark times for his people. Micah prophesied in an apparently hopeless age. Ahaz, the king, offered his own children in sacrifice to the false god Moloch. Hezekiah was a reformer, but very few followed his reforms from the heart. And here is a message of hope within a book that pronounces judgment. It opens with that in verse 1, the judgment coming upon the rebellious nation. And yet immediately in verse 2, the prophet does what the prophets so often do, telescopes way out into the future and prophesies of the one who would come that would be the deliverer of his people, the one who would restore his people, the one who would redeem and save the Messiah. And so in chapter 5, verse 2, 750 years before the Messiah was born, it was prophesied that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. It is an ancient message. It is bright with hope in a hopeless age, and it is fresh for each of us this evening. Well, let's think of this town of Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. The place of his birth. Bethlehem had a very special place in the hearts and lives of the people of God. It was dear to the heart of the Israelites who believed and trusted the promise because so much of redemptive history clustered here. Rachel died in Bethlehem, giving birth to Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow, but a greater son of sorrow, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Naomi, call me not Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Yet through her hard circumstances in the providence of God, one of the most remarkable instances of God's saving purposes would be wrought through the union of Ruth and Boaz would come Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the kingly ancestor of Christ, who was born in Bethlehem. The book of Ruth, you know, is really a Christmas story. Why did God bring about this birth in Bethlehem? Christ enters our history. He enters into the stream of history. This really happened. He is David's greater son. He is the king. He rules. He reigns. He saves. He established his kingdom that will be consummated at his return. This is why Joseph and Mary must take the long journey to David's royal city. 
This is why the angel says to the shepherds, do not fear, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born unto you. He is Christ the Lord. Do you know this king? This king who is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingship. This king who is the greater king than David. This king who is king of kings and lord of lords. Do you know this king that is called ruler in this text? Do you understand that as we gather on this Christmas Eve that we are not focused upon those things, as I mentioned in my prayer, that are simply sentimental? We are focused upon those things that are true and right and good and without which we cannot be redeemed or saved from our sins. If you do not know this king, as we during this season focus upon the humiliation of our Lord, that God came down and became a man that he might save us from our sins. If you do not know him, let me tell you, he is going to come again and he will not come in humiliation, but he will come in judgment to judge the quick and the dead. He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. This little baby that was born to die for sinners commands all sinners to faith and repentance. And for those who do not come, he will dash them to pieces and break them with a rod of iron. Do you know this king? Are you prepared for his next coming? Do you understand the significance of his first coming? Well, Bethlehem, the insignificance of his birthplace, despite its place, God's plan to save the world by bringing him into this little insignificant place this should be apparent to us. It's called Little. Not even mentioned among the great list of the towns of of Israel in Joshua 24, absent from the great list in Nehemiah chapter 11, not big enough to be seen as a municipal unit. It's not even on the map, so to speak, when he arrives in this world and assumes human nature. Now, every time I think of this, this, little, this text, I can't help of a little place. I've mentioned it to you before, but it's, I can't help but think of it. This little place that's just north of Macon, Georgia, which is my hometown, it's a little place called Bolingbroke. Just a short drive above in Macon, it's in the sticks, it's just in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when you drive into Bolingbroke, there's a sign that says, 42 people and one old grump. <laughs> that was Bethlehem, you see. It was just a little hole in the road. Now, where would most of us expect the Son of God to be born? Pastor McNeil rightly said from 2 Corinthians this past week that wherever he came into this world to be born would have been infinite condescension, and that is certainly true. But the world doesn't think that way, and where would the world expect for a king to be born? Well, maybe in London or Paris or maybe even in, uh, in uh, Tel Aviv, but Bethlehem, Bethlehem is nowhere, and the insignificance of his birthplace speaks of the lowliness of his birth. His lowly birth was not, first of all, an example to us, though it is, but not first of all. His birth was the beginning of his descent into hell. It is the beginning of his taking upon himself our sufferings, bearing the wrath of God in our place. 
His birth points ahead to the terrible cost for him to redeem sinners by shedding his blood. Here we see something of the great love wherewith he loved us when he came into the world. And so there he is. You can see it in your imagination. In this tiny little village, no room in the inn, born in a stable. Do you see why there is a significant change in the way this verse is quoted in Matthew? In Matthew, there is a change of great significance by divine inspiration. Because here we read in Micah that it's little among the thousands, it's insignificant among the thousands, but in Matthew 2.6 it says, And thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor. Not the least. Micah says the least. Matthew says not the least. Why? Because when Jesus comes to Bethlehem, Bethlehem is something. Bethlehem is the place the king was born. Matthew 2.6, Christ transforms this small and insignificant thing into this great thing. Greater than Jerusalem, greater than London will ever be, greater than Paris. This is true also of those into whose lives he comes. We are small. We are insignificant. We think the universe revolves around us until we're saved by grace, and then God puts us in our place, and we recognize that he is the universe around, he is the sun around which our universe must revolve. And so the world counts greatness in ways that God does not count greatness, and every child of God is great in him because we are in union with Jesus Christ and are princes and princesses in Christ. Are we not in union with him? Do not his perfections define us? Does, his, does not his righteousness declare us just? Does not his holiness work within our hearts even now? So we've seen the place of the Messiah's birth, something of its history, something of its insignificance. But secondly, let's think of the providence of God in bringing Joseph, Mary, and for the birth of the baby, to Bethlehem, the providence. Well, you know from Luke, Caesar Augustus makes a decree, take a census, and all who live elsewhere must travel inconveniently to their birthplace in order to be registered. And I like to tease you sometimes around Christmas. Sure is lucky, isn't it? <laughs> really, uh, lucky, sure is lucky that Caesar made the, the decree. Uh, and then he made it then and not earlier or later that Joseph and Mary must travel to Bethlehem, that they must go just in time when she's near giving birth. I mean, whew, the prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled if it had been a little earlier or a little later. Luck, hmm? No, it's not luck. We do not live in a chance universe, thank God. Never would you have had a Savior without divine providence, his most holy powerful, working through history to bring about what he has decreed from eternity past. 
The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He moveth it whithersoever he will. And so he moved in the heart of Augustus Caesar. And the same God who did this, arranged all of this, can save your soul. Do you realize that you are here tonight, you made a decision to come, but do you realize that it's in the providence of God that you are here? There are no accidents in God's universe, no accidents in His world. Do you realize if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, that it's because God was working all along to bring you in contact with the gospel at His appointed time so that you would believe and be saved, so that saving faith granted to you would be operative just at that time in which God determined that it would be? What a God we serve! What a wonderful God! Because ultimately, your coming to Christ is not your will. Yes, you will to come. He changes your will. It's His will that determines it. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So there's great doctrinal instruction here. Augustus Caesar acted as he pleased, and yet what he did was in accord with absolute predestination. How many things seem to overwhelm us as believers? How many things we worry about? How many things concern us? But these things of which we read are not by chance, and neither are those things of which we are worried about which we worry. What did Joseph and Mary know of God's decree, of God's governance, of, of, of the concurrence of, of history under his plan? What do you know? Well, this you may know. In the great things and in the small things, in the joyful things and in the hard things, our God reigns. What a God we serve. Go, take a census of the world, says Augustus. But as someone has said, Caesar's whim was God's decree. God is in it because God is God. Maybe your view of God is far too small. As a matter of fact, he's infinite. You can't even quantify it. Calvin says about providence, Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily flow from this knowledge. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of God's providence. Nothing is so benumbing as despair so stupefying, so paralyzing as despair. Listen, long before there was a sinner, there was a Savior. Long before you began with Christ, He began with you. Providence brought Christ to you and you to Christ, believer. And so the antidote to despair, and many during this season seem sometimes to have an overwhelming sense of despair. The antidote to despair is the knowledge of the providence of God, which is one of the major themes of the Christmas message. Do you remember that illustration of Jonathan Edwards about providence? It's a long, 
long river through history. God is working. There are all these tributaries. They seem to go backward. They don't seem to mesh or to meet, but eventually they all disgorge into the great ocean. Let me tell you, God is at work in the things that we cannot understand or comprehend in this world, just as he was at work here. He is at work to bring his kingdom to consummation. Now we've seen the place of the Messiah's birth, the providence of his birth. Let's look at another thing. The Messiah of whom Micah prophesies. Let's point out a couple of things. He's a ruler. Verse 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. He's a ruler. Isaiah 9, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The believing remnant. You see, the nation is under judgment. There is a believing small remnant. What would they have heard when they heard this prophecy? They would have heard, yes, Jerusalem will be raised to the ground. The professing church is in apostasy, but a ruler is coming to Bethlehem. And they did not altogether know what that meant, but they looked ahead by faith and they trusted in the promise. And in so doing, they trusted in Christ Jesus. Well, what about us? Again, Calvin points out that Christ's birth in hard times and in an insignificant place provides an image of the condition of the entire church throughout history. Just as the son was born in Bethlehem, in a town of insignificance, so the Lord will rescue his church whenever events become confused and chaotic and appear that the church is destined for ruin. But listen, this is the truly amazing thing. He is the eternal God. Which is why I've read the authorized version this evening. It's such a better translation of the latter portion of this. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet shall he come forth unto me, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It means eternity. And the language here is close to Proverbs 18, uh, 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 chapter 8, 22 and 23 and some other places. It means eternity. What happened in Bethlehem? Children, young people, what happened in Bethlehem long ago? The infinite became finite. The eternal subject to time. The immortal became mortal. God became man. The eternal God became is come in the flesh. And this little baby, truly God, truly man, grew and matured as a true man. And he went to a cross and he shed his blood to redeem sinners like us from our sins. Do you fear that his cross will not save you? Do you fear that your sin is just too deep to be forgiven? The eternal God became man and he died on a cross 
Do you think you can stretch your sin greater than his eternality? Do you think that you can stretch your sin greater than his infinite nature? Do you think that you can stretch your sin so that it cannot be covered by the infinitely valuable and all-sufficient sacrifice of the Savior on the cross? Do you fear that His love will not last? It is eternal. He is eternal. He is not a chameleon. And having loved His people, He will always love His people and He will keep His people. And do you fear that maybe you will not make it to the end because your Christian faith is so weak and your walk is so weak? Did not Christ sign the covenant of redemption in eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit? Did He not agree to pay for you, believer, with His infinitely valuable blood? Is not He your surety? God Himself become man, the one who has borne your legal obligations so that now there is no condemnation for you? Conclude then, He eternally keeps those He saves. And you may say at this Christmas time or any time, my name from the palms of His hands, eternity cannot erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. The perfect union of deity and humanity means that His sacrifice is of infinite value. And I cannot help but think that as we come to the end of Micah, and we read the assurance of pardon there, that the Holy Spirit would have us draw a line from Micah 5 to the end of it, to verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is what God in the flesh can do for sinners like us. But there's one other thing I must point out to you, and let this focus your attention during these these hours to come. God's glory is the highest reason for the Messiah's birth. Notice how God himself puts it in this verse. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. God says his coming forth is unto me or for me, if you will. Agreeable to the plan and purpose of God, His plan to save us from before the world was in order to do the Father's will and to do His work by fulfilling the law of God to perfection that we broke so that He might become a sacrifice for sin, glorifying all of God's perfections satisfying His justice, saving an almighty love, demonstrating God's mercy. We think that He came for us. He did. 
He came for me. He loved me and gave Himself for me. He did come for me. Believer, He did come for you. But there's something even grander. First, God says His coming is for me. Christ came to bring glory to the Father. And in verse 3, when God's promise seems as if it's going to fail, there's going to be this long period of time. Therefore, will He give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. That's Mary giving birth to Christ. The remnant of His brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Until the time God is in control, until the time there's going to be trouble, until the time there are trials, there are calamities, but God is in control. Roman armies will occupy Palestine, raising up Augustus. And why? God says, for my glory. The angel saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Why? For my glory. My glory. To be gospel, to be good news, it must be God-centered. To be gospel, it must bring all the glory to God. Man can take no credit for it. Once again, the Christmas message underscores, we cannot save ourselves. Only God can do it through Christ our Lord. And when He does it, you are a trophy of grace. You are raised up unto the glory of God. And you're saved because God determined to send His Son for His own glory. You are saved because God is glorifying Himself in saving sinners. You are saved because God sent His Son to Bethlehem and then to Calvary's hill so that we might sing, the glory, Lord, from first to last is due to Thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob Thee of Thy crown. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man, and grace was given us in Him before the world began. And so on this Christmas Eve, will you be lost in the wonder of God becoming man to save us? Will you lie before Him? Will you see that our problem is self-exaltation? That you and I are dependent on God for all good. You are dependent, I am dependent for my next breath. Will you see that redemption is God's plan to restore us, to offer Him praise and glory due to His name? Will you see that He glorifies Himself in destroying sinful rebellion? That if, if indeed you have not yet believed and repented, you're an autonomous sinner, you think. You can do what you will. Go your own way. Oh, my friend, you don't understand what awaits you if you do not believe and repent. Have you in your heart robbed Him of His crown? Do you see now that the whole point of Christmas is God's plan? To use the words of Jonathan Edwards, that God should appear full and man in himself empty, that God should appear all and humanity nothing? That's from my favorite sermon of Edwards, God glorified in man's dependence. 
Christmas teaches us that. And that is the way of God to us, the way of God to us. For He gives saving faith. And that is the way to the merriest of Christmases. Not a Christmas that's a fleeting thing, not a Christmas that's here and gone, not a Christmas in which you have a few nice things happen, but no eternal significance as far as you can see. No, no, a merry Christmas is, oh God, save me from my sins, all glory to his name. And for you as a family to think together upon this truth and this reality, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The word of the Lord. Amen and amen.